So as we've been walking through this series of living as exiles, as Peter has been laying out to these churches in Asia Minor that are living under the rule of Nero, and they are being called regularly again and again to submit, to be kind and quiet, and to, in a sense, work within the system and yet still be Christian in that sense, in that midst, to every human institution. He expands that. It essentially deals with community and the home. And you can even trace that. If you were to look back in chapter 2, you can see where as he begins the bigger picture of, look, you are a living stone. Basically, you're the church of the living God. You are the church of the living God. And being the church of the living God, whereas we have the stone that has been rejected, Christ himself as the cornerstone, we are now being fashioned into that building, so to speak, that living building where he would reign and he would reside. He wants to dwell with the people that he has made for himself. And in doing so, we live in a very real context. That context, if you look back at chapter one, speaks very clearly that our context is we are citizens of another world. This one, he in saving us, flipped a switch and immediately created in us an alienation with the world that we were citizens of earlier. So whether you were a child or as an adult, when you came to faith in Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus himself in saving you made you a foreigner here. Then to make sure that your citizenship is squarely with the people of God. And so the church in a sense is that, that hub or that embassy. It is where we are ambassadors together, as Paul would put it, to the Corinthians, that we are ruled by the laws of the kingdom of which we are citizens. That's why he basically says in all these contexts, live like a Christian within these contexts and you are not constrained by these contexts, whether governmental, whether in workplace or whether in the home, but you are then to be ruled by the rules and laws of the homeland. And that would be the kingdom of heaven. So things like the Sermon on the Mount or the one another's, those guide us as the church. Regardless of what the laws of the land may say, those guide us in all of our endeavors, in all of our relationships. So whether we are in our, out and about in our local communities or we are in the home, we are called to be Christian. I know that sounds awfully basic, but it, it's amazing how lazy we become when we assume that we all understand what it means to live as a Christian in a certain context, as one who works or as one who leads others who are working, employer, employee, government official, husband, wife, child. What we're gonna look at this morning is what does the Christian household, what does the Christian family look like as we live together in this exilic life, what does it look like within the house to be Christian? And what does that end up reflecting then to the world? Knowing this, and Peter is very clear on this, that even within that context, the world is sometimes sleeping right next to you in the sense that there are spouses who do know him, married to a spouse who does not know him. And you don't always get to have this nice and tidy all Christian family. Sometimes you, have, you are starkly reminded that being a Christian means this alienation, sometimes even in your own home. 
Now, obviously, it really can feel like a lot of work. And a lot of times we just simply want to have a break. But here's my contention. We all can take strides, and I pray that we will even this morning, where living as Christians in every context can become more natural, not easy, but a little more natural. And that's really kind of my... I mean, I've always thought that I had some Northeastern sensibilities built into me, even as a Texan. So as, as hopeful as I sound, I just have this kind of skeptical measured hope that we'll just get a little better. So this idea that basically we just get a little more natural at living as Christian in the settings that we can become the laziest at living as Christians. Now, all of that said, if you would... In chapter 3 of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, if you look in verse 6, here's what it says. Now listen very closely. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. All right, that's it. I'm done preaching. Women, if you just simply will obey your husbands and call them Lord, we're going to be good. Gordon, if you'd come. I'm just kidding. Um, that's, that's not the extent of it at all, guys. Um, no, let's go back to verse 1. I, there's a little bit of a context involved here. Although I do, I mean, I, I like that verse just fine, but I can't say I've ever demanded it. And if I ever did, I can't say it's, it would ever go well. So, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of the gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, even if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. God, I do pray that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help me to speak plainly, to not be given to um, anything that would be extreme, um, really in either, either direction, that our society and our culture, even within church culture, often wants to push things to the fringes um, and really makes it unpalatable. Um, not even understood by the world, much less people that are sitting in the pews. So Lord, our aim is for your word as it was originally written to be understood, known, applied, and that it would simply create a greater joy-filled environment, both in homes, but also as homes gather in the local church together, that basically this all would fuel a happier place for families here at Milford Bible. So Lord, help us to be... um, open. Holy Spirit, may you 
interpret according to the will of the Father on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, several things we need to do to kind of set things up. If you go back to chapter 2 and you begin when he talks about submitting to authorities in verse 13, okay? So, this is a big picture view of basically living as exiles in this world. There are hierarchies. There are structures. There is an order to things. And he does say that even in those environments where it's not easy, in fact, he even says pretty much in every context, it's not going to be easy, but we're still called to live a certain way even if it's hard. Even if we live, as Peter did, under Nero, the one upper emperor, no matter how many presidents you've lived through and how bad they were, Nero, okay, fine. But it says, under every human institution, what he means by that is he's simply saying that all institutions that have people, human beings, in structures were to live accordingly. Last week we talked about servants, even slaves, not at all that the Bible endorses such. Simply saying in the context of home life, but also in the community, that there were those who were owned as property. In fact, culturally, women and slaves were considered about on par with one another. Men and women were not. Women were more seen as property, like slaves were seen as property. And actually, if you really read our text in light of what you understand the context to be, you realize how subversive our text is. Even when he says at the end of the, the section that we're to love our wives as heirs with us in the grace of life. That alone is an incredibly subversive statement for what would have been understood in the culture at the time, which was women were lesser than men. They were property. So we have to understand this context, and yet we also have to be careful of something, and that is we have to be careful of simply associating difficult passages and assigning them to a culture that's nothing like ours, and then thinking that it must not then apply to us because our culture is just so much different as if we're so much more advanced. We have to reject that thinking because where does that stop? The fact is there's a word here called subject or submission. There is clearly some kind of order here when it comes to men and women. There is at least distinction. I'll put it that way. So as we talk about this, let's just deal with a couple of framework issues as we dive in. All right, there's one of those passages basically that you're like, oh no, I just got through with slavery. And then we also got the, you know, we basically talked about Christian nationalism. And so now we have this, like, can we please just talk about hell or something? But it's not, I don't mean it quite like that. But, um, but you press through long enough, you start to become excited about what the Lord has for the people and for yourself. So please understand I'm with you as I preach also to you, to me as well. Now, as he talks about this submission, you need to understand something. This is similar to Paul in, over in Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul also speaks of a mutual submission that has to happen um, in society. But mutual does not mean identical. What it means is everybody submits to somebody. Okay, we need to understand this because this protects us from thinking that there is kind of this cavalier, wild equality that must be applied in all circumstances. You would not go to work and speak to a supervisor or the CEO as if he was purely an equal. There would be a bit of a difference. And yet he submits to somebody, board of directors or someone, somewhere. Stockholders. 
The point is, is that mutually, mutual submission does not mean we all submit in the same way to one another. For instance, in Ephesians 5, when Paul's going through his list of submissions and he deals with husbands and wives, he goes next to children. Well, parents don't submit to children in the same way, and yet parents are submitting in a sense to one another, but in different ways, and they're certainly submitting then to the Lord. But we don't submit to our children in the same way that children submit to us. This just doesn't even fly logically, much less in any context of Scripture that speaks of of mutual submission. It's just simply to say this, that as Christians in a foreign land, in this world, we all submit to someone, and we need to understand what it's like to be a Christian as those who submit to others, as well as being a Christian that that others do sometimes submit to. That question gets lost a whole lot when we're talking about the roles of men and women. Because it seems like the paradigm is always about the woman disagreeing with the man and what does she have to do to be a Christian as if that's even the attitude or spirit of what the scriptures would have to say. Clearly, and I I hate that this has to even be said, but clearly there's nothing in this that would say that, that even though Peter says, look, even if they're not a believer, you're to act a certain way or live a certain way. He's not saying, hey, Christian men, basically just make it as hard as possible for your wife to want to enjoy you leading the home. Let's dare her to be a Christian in the worst, most toxic environment possible. Not at all. In fact, husbands, you have a great accountability before the Lord in the leadership of your home. So, but we do have to acknowledge that the context was different. The culture was different, but the truths remain. That's us submitting to the authority of the word. The truths still remain. Now, a couple of things that as we look at this, we have to understand that, that in that varying culture of first century Middle East, as it relates to where we are in the West and this, this view of, of women prior to when Christianity then showed up, it all of a sudden provided and afforded a great freedom. There's no greater emancipation proclamation than the gospel. And it made equal men and women in every way. Okay, in the sense that they are made in the image of God. So then when Paul does give some constraints here and there about the roles that men and women may play, or even when he says things about, I don't really permit women to speak in this context like this. A lot of times it was in response to women taking that newfound freedom and going a little bit too far with it. And Paul's still saying, guys, they're still in order to things, but there is, but he still at the same time would be talking about how God is broken down, whether man or woman, Scythian, Jew, there's no division when it comes to the gospel of those who've been made in the image of God. We are all sinners and we all are okay with God based only on the person of Jesus Christ laying that equal groundwork. And yet Paul still says there are some distinctions. There are some differences. God's made things that way with some distinction. Now, as we go through this, we need to understand, first of all, in verse one, when he says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband. Well, what does that likewise refer back to? Well, if you go back to its most immediate reference, it's talking about he himself in verse 24, bore our sins in his body on the tree that he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for we who were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. First, most immediate context, whenever especially the Greek makes these connections. Now, I do think that he's speaking of the previous statement on submission, but it's also inclusive of the most immediate phrases right before the word likewise. 
He is saying this is a gospel work, ladies, to submit in the household. It's a gospel work to show that what Christ did on the cross and what he did in bearing our sin in our place, that you are, first of all, if you're a Christian, you are saved as much as that husband or potentially that husband. You are saved only by the grace of God. And because so, and because he endured all manner of injustice, that he's saying, look, even if you are living in a context where the husband that you are submitting to is not a Christian, he is saying that you can do this. Now, there's no way to get into all the caveats of what if it's an abusive situation. But at the same time, we have to deal with this. And I will in just a moment. But just before those things start clicking in your, in your head, please understand that there are, again, some differences. Even though we, we submit like others submit to other authorities, whether it's servants or whether it's us to governments, it doesn't mean it's all exactly the same. But there is a submission that goes on. And he's saying that the manner in which we do it, likewise, has to do with the manner in which you do it. You're doing it as Christ does it. So you have to let go of your cultural sensibilities, even your human tendencies, and think in terms of gospel framework. Because there is an evangelistic component to this. So likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So let's first talk about what it looks like to live as Christian wives in the home. Well, first of all, he does say it certainly is, there is submission. But this word actually means to win over. I'm sorry, it means to submit to, and then the one word means to win over or to gain. And the, the idea of this beautiful picture is, as a person then quietly, humbly, submits to a husband's authority, okay? And what I mean by that is their leadership, a deferment to their leadership. And in doing so, they do so in the spirit of Christ. That's the likewise part. But they do it with the idea of they are emulating Christ in the home. So he's saying you don't get to give a caveat of, well, if he's not a Christian, you don't have to submit. Look, I'll say, I'll say this. If a husband is leading you to do something that is immoral and sinful, you are not called to submit to that as a Christian, okay? If there is an abusive situation where there is either physical or rampant verbal abuse going on, it is okay to, with the church's help, first of all, put yourself in a safe environment first, okay? To step out of that moment and be safe. And yet, personally, and I think our elders as well, we would also not necessarily counsel you to rush into divorce, Let's wait. Let's see, because part of submission in that moment when there is abuse is to not then take the reins and cut legally off the covenant that you have with the spouse, at least right then. You're still submitting to the arrangement, but you are needing to be safe. Now, I realize this is more of a prudential reading into other texts, but I do believe that that would be faithful. But however, meaning to be safe in that kind of environment, I don't think that What's, what Peter is saying here is kind of like being persecuted by the government and, you know, literally taking the hits. I wouldn't use that phrase in today's message. But there still is a way that you can quietly, humbly submit even in a very toxic, even abusive situation by, first of all, don't just sit there and take the hits. Make sure that you are in a safe place 
But in the midst of that, don't necessarily cut off the covenant relationship, holding out all hope for God to do something miraculous in changing the heart of the husband. Now, according to Scripture, if he puts you out, if he divorces you, then according to Scripture, by concession, that is a divorce that the Scriptures would recognize as being legitimate. Hated, awful, painful, but that would be a legitimate one. If he just cannot stand that you're a nice Christian, he's done with it, you just won't respond to his aggravations, and he puts you aside, you simply, part of the submission of that is going along with it as much as you will hate it as well. But part of submitting in those environments is simply trusting that more than our sensibilities would allow. Get safe, but stay in it, so to speak, as long as Scripture would call you to stay in it, if that makes sense. I'm kind of talking around that, but I think that's part of the environment here when we deal with a lost husband or a husband that's acting lost. Because he says, even if, so he gives right off the bat any objection, he deals with the objection right off the bat, even if they do not obey the word that you may, what? Win them without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, this, isn't, this doesn't fly in the face of the, the most hated quote in, in history for me of, you know, if, share the gospel if you have to use words. Um, that's not really what it's talking about because as you look further in the context, he's talking about adorning being a Christian, putting, clothing the gospel with action. That basically, once words are added to it, that even your suffering in a difficult circumstance and situation, it's just laid the groundwork for the gospel to be heard clearly. It shouldn't be basically, if someone were to hear the gospel of grace and mercy, for them to look upon a very contentious Christian wife. That's not consistent with what the word is saying here. So we're called Wives, you are called in all your circumstances to live before in your house, okay? While it's at least safe, even though it's hard and difficult, you are to live there in such a way that you submit to the authority and the leadership, I'll put it that way, if authority is too hard of a word to, to pout this morning, just the leadership of your husband, you defer to that. And it doesn't mean just this, this way that's just to mirror as if you're a doormat. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that your spirit is governed by the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That is evidence of the indwelling spirit for all believers. And so if you need a template to work through, wives, while you're in a difficult marriage, work through that one. And you'll be in good keeping here. While you are also steadily praying for the spirit of God to save your husband, or to change a wayward, professing Christian husband. That word for one does mean gained. It means that you've basically gained someone. So it, it technically could mean someone who is, when he says don't obey the word, that doesn't necessarily mean, it certainly includes a non-Christian, but it doesn't exclusively mean a non-Christian. It could mean a Christian who is not following his responsibility as a husband, articulated in verse 7. And that's really hard because they should know better. So as he goes on, he says this. He says, as they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, I know that sounds like you're supposed to be perfect, but that's not really what he's calling you to be. But he is saying that you are leading by example. 
So even though you're deferring in your submission to a husband, you're actually leading out in the example of what it's like to be a Christian in the home. Now, too often, that, this, this is out of order in even Christian homes. Men lazily allow their wives to spiritually lead the household. All the family devotions, all the prayers, everything is led by the woman. And in fact, it's, it's not out of order all, all that much to see these patterns that you might see in a child's life. They go through about middle way through high school. Most kids stop coming to church. And most, by the, at least by the numbers, don't ever go back to church. Something like 85% once they leave high school age don't go back to church. Oftentimes you'll see this in a, in a husband's life is that you will see that even once the kids then they empty nest, a lot of times you will see them fade and fade and fade until only the wife, she at the tail end begins to be the only one taking the kids to church and to activities and then only the wife remains coming to church and the husband remains at home. It's a pattern that's just too often revealed in the life of every local church. We are called to live as Christians regardless of context, regardless of situations. So, women, to live as a Christian life, you are to subject to the leadership of your husband. You're to honor him. You are to understand that in that honor of God, by doing what God has said in deferring and submitting to the leadership, is also understanding there's an evangelistic component to this, okay? As he says, if you live this way and bear the fruit of the Spirit in the home, it could absolutely be an evangelistic aspect of what it means for him to come to Christ. And you're also leading by example, both the gospel itself, but also to other women. In fact, this phrase uh, of um, respectful and pure conduct is, is emulated over in Titus 2, which is one of the great chapters on what it looks like to have discipleship, where older women are training younger women and older men training younger men. This phrase is used by Paul in Titus. So you're not just being an example to your husband in the gospel, you're also setting an example for other women that you will be teaching and training and sharing with, even discipling as people who are going into marriages. It's very much a discipleship tool. Nothing is easy about it at all. But again, keep in mind, it doesn't mean, Peter is setting this up for us to understand we are to live as Christians regardless of how easy it is. But he's not saying that it's always toxic. It's always that hard. It doesn't have to be. In speaking more about this, and and by the way, I think that the fact that Peter and Paul both actually use more words with women than he does with men is not because women are hard-headed. I think it's because men can't handle more words. I just want to be clear on that. Because he goes on, he says, do not let your adorning be external. Ladies, this doesn't mean let yourself go. He's talking about emphasis. He's talking about thinking that somehow that can cover being contentious. He's pretty explicit, I think, on this. He says, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's just, he's not saying don't braid your hair. He's not saying don't put on nice jewelry or shower or whatever else. He says, but let your adorning, this needs to be your emphasis. This needs to be your passion. If anything, think about how much time you may take to get ready to go out in public. Think about how much time you do take to make sure that you don't look, at least look or smell offensive 
And think about, is there that kind of intention and practice going on with what is real adornment for the gospel, which would be the hidden person of the heart, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. But then he gives an example, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So keep in mind this picture. And he uses Sarah with Abraham as as an example. They hoped in God. They weren't hoping in their husbands. They were hoping in God. And when they're talking about submitting to Abraham, they both laughed when it came to the, the idea of having a child. They chatted. They had conversation. But because of the calling that God had clearly placed on Abraham's life, what does he do? He leads out. He had the calling of God, he led, and yes, even though with some reluctance, she went along with him, but it wasn't in total silence. She felt the freedom and the fearlessness to laugh at the prospect of having a child at her age. Think about that. Even in her culture, she didn't think that laughter would lead to a beating. I hate to sound that harsh, but in that culture, anything at all would be possible if you're not going to follow and obey the orders. She was following the leadership of the call of God on Abraham's life. I'm not trying to soften what submission looks like or sounds like, guys, because of our culture. I want you to understand the context that it means this submission to the deferred leadership. So think about this, guys. You are to then lead in this Abraham kind of way, a guy willing to sacrifice everything at the calling of God. That you're posturing yourself to listen in such a way that you know God's heart for you and your home. And she submitted to that leadership. He so was not perfect. But at the same time, he didn't make it miserably hard. They had been living in faith for a long time all along the way. Up until these really magnanimous moments of taking a son up to a killing floor on a mountain only to have God provide a replacement as he did with us with Christ. But still, it's an example. So I derive from this that to live as a Christian wife in the home as you defer or subject yourself to your husband's leadership, even if he is not a believer, that you can honor him in that way. You can show forth the gospel by living this way, by living the fruit of the Spirit out in the home. Don't grow lazy in doing that. That's intentional. It takes being on purpose. It takes some time alone with the Lord. But don't grow lazy in bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your home to give an example to your husbands. To make sure that you are beautifying the gospel with who you are, not just what you look like. But we also ask, just as we need to make leadership and following our leadership much easier, please make it easier for us to see the beauty on the inside by there still being some beauty going on on the outside. Don't test us. I'm just kidding. Sort of. Just be nice. Be nice with us. I'm just saying the deferment, the ambition here. Okay, because guys, you will hear fringes of this. You will hear guys that will talk about submission and they'll say a woman's job is to make sure that she looks beautiful to her man And he'll just go on and extrapolate all these scriptures. Well, I'm saying that the scriptures actually say that man needs to be most attracted by the woman that she's becoming on the inside. 
And it's so good of God that as we grow in Christ, we care less and less about what's going on on the outside. But that doesn't mean we totally ignore it. Focus on beautifying the gospel with a gentle and quiet, a peaceable is what that quiet word means, a peaceable lifestyle. And then also decide that your conduct in the home is defined by Scripture. It's not going to be defined by culture. You have examples. I mean, he says, just like Sarah, just like the women of old. We look to, they were looking to the Old Testament. We look to the Scriptures to give us, in a sense, our marching orders in how to live our lives in the home. And that's what we have here. So, honor God. Evangelize and encourage your husbands by living this example. Also understand that it's an encouragement to the body, younger women as well, to see your example of living faithful lives in marriage in the home. Keep this in mind. He goes on and says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now keep that in context to Sarah. I don't think you necessarily have to extrapolate it to everything that would ever scare you. Think about what caused her great fear. Having a child completely changing the course of her life for the rest of all of her days. A very scary proposition of where they were going. But she says, I trust the Lord that is leading my husband and I'll go along with it. I think that's the most immediate context of what Peter is saying. I don't think he's saying that you don't fear whatever's frightening as far as a a scary, yelling husband. I think he's saying clearly that when someone leads you to some calling like Abraham led Sarah, that you submit to that and you go along with it. But again, they both had to mitigate and deal with their own fears and their own questions. And we have that biblical record. It's not just Abraham's story, it's also Sarah's. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, she trusted the Lord by submitting to the leadership of her husband. And that's more of what we're talking about on a day-to-day basis. It's not this reluctance of, okay, fine, I'll go along with it, which isn't even the spirit of godly submission anyway. But we think that that's always the context, and it's not. For Christian homes, it's more often deferring to and trusting that at the end of the day, we can talk about these things. Jane and I do this. We'll talk about things. But if there is a decision that just has to be final, in our talking about these things, we'll talk about it. And very few times have I ever been so convinced of doing something that was so contrary to, to what Jan believed we should do. In fact, if I can, the thing that comes most prevalent to mind to help give this more of a kind of a reality in life was buying a particular car and it was a terrible car and I totally should have listened to her so for what that's worth a lot of times guys it still comes down into more those moments of there's this at the end of the day a call has to be made and there's a deferment to that leadership in that but guys you need to be postured as a leader you need to be postured as a sacrificial leader in the house. So then Peter gives just very few words to what it looks like to live as a Christian husband in the home in verse 7. He gives you one stinking verse. Likewise, so you have the same likewise that she does. 
to emulate the gospel in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has died for you, died for your sin, you are not inherently okay because you're a dude, that you are on this standing. And that only standing you have is because of Christ. Not because you have a wife, not because you have a job, not because of who you think you are as a guy, but only because of Jesus. And as he lays down that foundation, he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now that word understanding is, most of you have been around church enough to know there's two words for knowledge. One is epinosis, one is gnosis. Epinosis is about intimate interaction and um, yeah, it's just more of an intimate kind of experiential knowledge. Whereas gnosis is really more about information. And that's actually the word here. Think about that for a minute. To live with your wives in an understanding way, which what that means, especially in Jaren form, means that you are actively wanting to know her. This is a far cry from the guy that says, well, I told my wife that I loved her 20 years ago, and when it changes, I'll let her know. That's, that's not really understanding. It's closer to, this is probably a good dozen years ago or so, we were in Fayetteville in our house um, I never watch golf like all the way through. It's, it's a good background for naps. And so I was watching the final tournament of, uh, it was the final round of, of one of the big, big tournaments, majors. And um, I, I don't even know if, if Jane remembers this, but I remember that as I'm sitting there and I was awake and I don't remember who was even playing, but Jan said some phrase, and it may not be exact, so don't hold me to this, but it was close enough. She said something like that was a great up and down. Now, if you know golf or whatever, and if a guy's coming out of a trap and if he's putting himself in a situation that's difficult, they often refer to getting out of a trap and getting it on the green and still being possible to make par. They'll call that, in general, that's, a great, that's an up and down. That's a great up and down. That it, it's, it's a bad situation, you got yourself out of it. It was such a, a specific sports reference that my immediate thought was, where are my children? Because... My romantic inclination for my wife, who was a band geek in high school, speaking so knowledgeably of a sport, greatly heightened my desire for romantic activities. <laughs> you can let that sit for as long as you want to. But I was so impressed, I didn't give a rip about taking my nap, <laughs> watching any more of the tournament. She spoke with knowledge. To this day, I still don't have a clue what all her knitting tools do. And by the way, she actually, we have boxes and boxes of knitting materials. I'm not just saying that because women knit. I have to work on this better. To have a holy curiosity just to know my spouse is actually a godly exercise of leadership in the home. Get to know your wife. Stay curious about what she likes and doesn't like. Okay, now I'm not going to dumb this down to kind of this moralistic checklist of how to have a better marriage, but you need to see, guys, that part of your leadership is to want to know them better, to know their context, to know what does make them tick. Just pure information is an incredibly loving act that makes it easy at least easier for a godly woman to submit to the leadership of someone who wants to know her so well. 
You get this? You are too, just like the wife is in her submission in a difficult circumstance, you are also to submit to Christ and adorn the gospel in your home by making it almost a non-factor to even use the word submit. Because she sees you emulating and following Christ long before any decision needs to be deferred to. This conversation drives me nuts on social media because it, they, there's like almost never any talk at all about a guy's responsibility in leading out in the home. It's always about what the women can't do, shouldn't do, whatever. And that's an incredibly dumb conversation to have in social media. The scriptures tell us, guys, we are to live with our wives wanting to know more about who they are. We show honor to the woman as what this says, as the weaker vessel. Now, again, we don't have time. We've got the Olympics going on. We don't need to talk about transgender sports or whatever, but it is kind of fascinating that regardless, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, there's actually not a perfectly lined up situation of progressive and conservative when it comes to a transgender male running in an all-women race, because all of a sudden, people see some of the differences of, wait, there's inequality here. This isn't right. It's not supposed to be this way. We got to do something about this. Somehow, we have to do something about it while we still say that this is okay and, and all this change is okay, but this really isn't fair. Now, the fact is, yes, I could say that the idea of weaker does mean that there's a physiology to this. Yes, there were some girls in high school, and I was six, I was six one as an eighth grader. My dad, six six, my mom though five one. Hit ninth grade, my mom's DNA kicked in, and I had to learn how to be a point guard real fast, whereas I'd been a center or at least a four spot all my years up until then. But there were some girls I went to school with that I would not want to fight. And even though I do think there's some reference here, do you know that also one of the words here is the word sick for weak? Now listen to me for just a second. What if, what if the Bible is being prophetic to the vernacular of our day? And how much better would this conversation be if it said, men, lead and honor the woman as if she's sick. What if the Bible's prophesying a vernacular like we use it now? That is so sick. That is so cool. What if that's what it means? That's not what it means, but what if it did? How much better would the conversation be? My woman is sick. Okay, that's not what it means. Even Suzanne had to turn around. She's like, it's already hard to follow you and do sign with you. I don't even know what this is right now. So, okay, that's not what it means. But it does mean that there is a, a weaker, but it doesn't mean this dainty kind of thing. We all have had, I mean, even though I joke about my wife being, uh, you know, a band geek. And I was, I was, I mean, it was, there was Jesus. And then there was like athleticism was on my checklist before I got married. married. Seriously. And then, and band geek wasn't on there. I mean, it just wasn't, it was way down the list, but just couldn't, couldn't resist my wife, so we got married. But then, you know what happened? Years later, my wife ran a full marathon, six weeks pregnant. Yeah, so, you know, take that, all those athletic girls that I dated back in the day. Got a band geek, flute-playing woman that can run with 
child. <laughs> the point is, we're not talking about the leading like they're dainty, but there is, there is a strength and a weakness. There is just some physiology involved, yes. But it's not this, this kind of wimpy kind of thing. It's just simply understanding that there is a strength and a leadership and there's also this understanding that there is a role that women play and there's a role that men play. And there's just basically, he's just saying there is a difference. And even in our physiologies overall, okay, not talking about inequality as far as being made in the image of God, but just overall, there is, those differences show forth even in our physiology. So he's saying, understand these differences and lead as such. Okay, this isn't, the, you know, the tough guy that's sitting in his chair in his t-shirt and just screaming for another beer. He's getting to know her. He's showing her honor. And he says, and he also says, make sure you have this perspective that they are co-heirs with you in the grace of life. This is your sister in Christ. Husband, this is your sister in Christ. So think about it, wives. How much easier would it be to submit to the, and defer to the leadership of a husband who is seeking to understand you has this holy curiosity about who you are. He wants to lead you and give you honor. He wants to make sure that the kids know they need to respect you and they see it in you as well. And then he also treats you as a sister in Christ that you're actually growing together in your faith in the Lord. Do you really think you're going to come up to a ton of decisions or a ton of conversations that are completely divergent? I'm not saying you don't at some point. There is always the Montero, the red Montero. It's always my, mm, it was a terrible car. But there's always an occasion where we'll, where we'll glitch. But along the way, for the most part, this is the cadence of what it looks like to have a Christian home in a fallen world. This is what it looks like to have a Christian home as exiles in a world that is not our home. And we end up not really fitting in with a lot of different people or places. We don't necessarily fit in in some, you know, push for equality at the denigration of others. You know, because equality really almost always means supremacy. We don't, we're not going to fit all that well in culture. We have to understand that for the wife, the tether is back to Christ. For the husband, the tether is back to Christ. So in light of that, how does that change your leadership, husband? In light of that, how does that change your followership, your deferment, wife, to your husband? It's not easy at all. But I suspect that in a, in a room this size that whoever's watching online, I suspect though there's a lot of improvement that we as husbands can make to make the deferment of our leadership a whole lot easier by being godly in the home. By taking leadership spiritually in the home to see our kids grow in faith and lead out in that. To see our wives want to grow and develop in the faith and lead out in that. We have a great need to take God at his word. We try to interpret the best we can according to the original authorial intent. And Peter was saying in the midst of being persecuted from the outside world, husbands don't take that frustration out at home and wives understand that the Christian home actually can be this great, wonderful place that shows forth the gospel to a culture that just doesn't understand it.
Husbands and wives are equally accountable to God for the roles that they play in the home. Now, I could argue that there's a little bit more responsibility a husband has in his leadership, but that's more from the teacher accountability than it is even his role as a husband. We are accountable to God to live like Christians in our marriages, guys. And again, wives, if you have an ungodly husband, a husband truly that doesn't know the Lord, it's hard, it's difficult. As long as you're generally safe, you need to remain and be a witness. Work with your church, your elders, your friends, if there's a situation where it either gets like it's not safe, or if he begins to talk about putting you out as far as divorcing you, to walk through that together with the church. It's a messy world and these are realities. You know, he doesn't deal with husbands, what is it like if you marry a woman who's not a believer? Most of these circumstances in first century would have been people coming to Christ after their marriages. There's nothing here that says, in fact, there's nothing in Scripture that would ever say anything about it either being a good idea or endorsed to go out and marry an unbeliever. There's no anecdotal evidence you can give of some husband coming to Christ because of a godly woman that would justify that being a new pattern for evangelistic dating. Praise God that people come to Christ in mixed marriages, so to speak. But we do say that there is an order. And this order does not mean subjugation, dominance, beating down of others. We all share emulation of the gospel with different roles. There's leadership, there's deferment, but we're together in showing forth the gospel of Christ. So, I know it's a lot, and I don't know if any of it's as specific as you would hope for, but all I can tell you is the Word of God has given us a mandate to lead like Christ and to follow husbands as if you're following Christ. Men, you are to be as much of Christ as you possibly can be in being sacrificial and being loving and being honoring to your spouse. Women, you are to submit to your husbands, and if they do not know Christ or if they are Christians but are not leading as Christ would lead, again, not perfectly, but still you get the idea of this trajectory, then you still are called to submit and defer to that leadership, and you trust God's economy in this. Happy to have conversations with you following um, or even through the week. I know there's scenarios, guys. There's just no time to deal with all those scenarios. 